<laughs> Perfect. Um, this is our last Sunday in the on-the-job training sermon series. It's been our discipleship series. This is week 13. Uh, for the past 13 weeks, we've looked at what it means not only to believe things about Jesus, to know information about Jesus, but to follow him with our whole lives as he teaches us to follow him better on the job. Um, it's also Christ the King Sunday, Reign of Christ Sunday, um, in which we acknowledge, celebrate, proclaim that Jesus is King of all things. But before we get into things too deep and too heavy, I have a question for the grown-ups in the room. I, we have a few kids in here, but this is, this is for the grown-ups. Um, do you ever remember a moment, or maybe several moments, it, when you were younger, child, teenage years, where there was something you really wanted to do, and mom or dad or the teacher or grandma or grandpa said, you can't do that. Right? You have that moment, and, and that's, that's kind of the, the foundation of the question. The real question is, do you remember thinking to yourselves these words? I can't wait until I'm an adult, because then nobody will tell me what to do. <laughs> we have anybody that has that recollection. So how's that working out for you? Um, as a kid, you, you look at it, and you, you see these authority figures in your lives, and you think, these are the people that shape my lives, they tell me what to do, and when I'm grown up and make my own money, have my own place to live, um, can make my own decisions about my schedule, nobody is going to tell me what to do. Um, for those of us who are grown-ups, and we'll admit it, that we're grown-ups, uh, I don't think that panned out the way we'd hoped. Um, Many of us look back at our childhood years and think of those are the years where we had the least amount of responsibilities, the most freedom, uh, the most amount of playtime, less um, bosses and kids telling us what needs to be done, right? Not worrying about what the neighbors think of our lawn or any of those other things, right? Like we are, as adults, surrounded by other people that have expectations on us. And so sometimes we get caught up in this idea of freedom as a total absence of anybody else having any boundaries or restraints on us. Freedom is interpreted as no one's going to tell me what to do. Um, we don't often understand freedom as the ability to follow somebody really well. Freedom as the ability to go down a path that somebody else laid for us. We value our, a virtue in our culture is, you know, blazing our own trail, making our own paths, being our own individual. We don't often think of freedom as the ability to follow down a path that somebody else laid out for us. Like I said, there's a very American attitude that we have that says nobody's going to tell me what to do. But that attitude can be a serious barrier to our faith and it can be a barrier to life in the kingdom. I'm going to ex explain all that and what that has to do with Christ the King Sunday and what that has to do with baptism and dedication here in a moment. As we dig deeper, we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture from the book of Colossians. We're going to look at chapters one, uh, chapter one, verses 11 through 20. It'll be on the screens um, or if you want to use your device, your app, your app on your phone or something, or there's Bibles under the chairs, uh, kind of scattered throughout the sanctuary if you need one there. But we'll read these uh, verses from Colossians chapter 1, 
Verse 11 starts by saying, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Um, did I not make enough slides for this? Is that the end of the slides? Oh, you're ahead, of, you're, you're ahead of me. I looked up, I lost my place. Let me try this again. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would gather our minds, that they may be one with you, open our ears, that we may hear your word. Soften our hearts, that we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. So this scripture that we read comes from a letter to a church, and, and there's some heavy language here. It's pretty, pretty religious, symbolic language, and, and I'm trying to help us kind of navigate this. Um, but this letter is written to a church in a city called Colossae. Um, Colossae is a city that if you put it on a map today would be in like Turkey um, not Thanksgiving Turkey but the country of Turkey um, kind of that region at the time this letter was written Colossae was a smaller city it, it had had a heyday it had been a major trade route like the, the route would go right through the city and because of that the traffic and the trade and the visitors and, and all that economic stuff would come through the city, and they had great prosperity and great wealth. It, it was a powerful economic city at one point in time. But other things developed, other cities developed around it. The trade routes changed. And so by the time this letter was written, um, Colossae had seen better days. So there was this church, this faithful community of Jesus believers that gathered and worshipped in this little city. And like I said, it had been this major trade route. And what, what trade routes brought, not only did they bring economic diversity through there, but they brought cultural and religious diversity through there. And so one of the issues that is, is real um, for this church was the thing called uh, synchronism. Uh, and all that means is when you take different religious cultures and different religious elements and mush them together and kind of create a buffet of cultural beliefs and practices. And so there's this blending of religious practices and cultural traditions that kind of all smoosh together. Um, 
And as a result, the church, which once was really strong in its faith and really clear in its purpose and understanding of who Jesus was, was now confused, a little lacking that clarity of what it means to follow Jesus. And so that's the purpose of this letter. Paul and Timothy, it says, are the authors of this letter, and they write to this church to help them understand what the gospel is. It's to remind them and to clarify the gospel of Jesus. Now, it's not a gospel in the sense that this is a plan to get saved. There was no Romans road of salvation. There was no uh, pray this prayer uh, type of thing. The gospel was not viewed as this moment by moment thing that like, you could make a decision on in a split second. That it wasn't a plan. It was a story of who Jesus was. That was the gospel that Paul taught. Um, and so once you understand who Jesus is, says Paul, you can understand who everyone else is. And so he writes this church in Colossae saying, you've got to understand who Jesus is to understand who you are. And you have to understand the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, to understand what parts fit and what parts don't. And so to this confused mishmash of religious beliefs and practices, Paul writes this letter to bring clarity of purpose. He says, let us no longer be confused. And so that's kind of the context. Let us take a look at the words that we read a moment ago. Um, if you know me, you know that I preach from the lectionary, the prescribed texts every week. So the, every week we have four different Bible verses that are kind of made available to us to choose from, and uh, I don't always know the reason why the people that put that together choose the scriptures they do, but for whatever reason this week, um, and they're infinitely wisdom, that's not me criticizing the, the people that put the lectionary together, like it's, it's brilliant, um, but for whatever reason, they started the lectionary in the middle of a sentence this week. Uh, if, you, if you notice when I started reading verse 11, it started with a verb, um, being strengthened, right? There's this idea, right? It's just who, what, what's going on? It's just being strengthened, right? So I want to go back two verses and just read to you verse 9 and 10 because what we read started in the middle of a sentence and it's actually a prayer. Paul is writing a prayer for these people and I want you to hear everything that Paul has to say to this church. <laughs> he says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continue to ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and then being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. But understanding that, that this church is wrestling with... Uh, a lack of clarity, some confusion as to what the gospel is, this prayer that Paul is, is, is praying for this church makes a lot, a lot of sense, does it not? Since we've heard about what's going on with you, we haven't stopped praying, he says. We continually ask God that he would give you wisdom so that you could discern what is of Jesus and what is not. Right? May the Spirit give you that ability so that you can live a life worthy of Jesus. And that this life would bear good fruit, that it would bear good work in your faithfulness to God. 
And then it goes on, like I said, it, you know, there's this phrase where it says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so you have great patience and endurance, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you. And I want you to, to, to kind of key in on the next few sentences here. He says, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And it's in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Paul's talking about kingdom, dominion here. And it's helpful, and I say this often, but kingdom isn't a place. Right? We, we often think of kingdom as like, oh, it's a country, like the United Kingdom, that, that, the kingdom of this, the kingdom of that, like it's a place you could go to. But when they use the word kingdom, they mean authority, the reign, the rule over, the power, the sovereignty of a king over a territory, over a people. It's the extent of that king's power. Right? And so in these verses, there's two kingdoms present. There's a dominion or a kingdom of darkness that Paul is talking about. Again, kingdom's not a place, so it's not a place that's dark. He's talking about a rule of darkness, a power of darkness, even a specific king that rules the dark place. A dark dominion, a dark kingdom is not merely a place where evil exists, like don't go on that side of town because that's the dark kingdom type of thing. But rather, he's talking about this dark kingdom is an authority, a power over people that leads to death and destruction. And this dark power, this kingdom of darkness, has power over people. It controls their lives. It corrupts their will. Even when people want to do good, they end up doing the wrong thing. It binds them to a fate of death. This is the power of the kingdom of darkness. To, to see where this kind of shows up other places, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, um, it says, the God, lowercase g, and it kind of means ruler, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right, so there's this, this ruler of the darkness that not only rules the darkness, but corrupts and blinds the people that live in it. You're unable to escape on your own. You've been wounded in such a way that you, there's no way out on your own. It corrupts and blinds you. Acts 26 verse 18 says that God opens their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan and turn to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. They may be set free from this kingdom of darkness and death and sin and have an inheritance among the sanctified, those who have been made holy. And so from the beginning of the Old Testament story, there's been one problem, one problem with the people of God. The defining problem of, of, of the Bible from, from the beginning to, to the end, the problem was that the people of God were living in the wrong kingdom. They ended up serving the wrong king over and over and over again. The story of Israel begins in earnest in Egypt, serving the Pharaoh, right? They were slaves for Pharaoh. And the problem wasn't that they were in Egypt. It wasn't a geographic problem. The problem was that their ruler was an uncompassionate, evil, greedy, powerful, corrupted ruler and didn't take care of his people. The problem was that 
the people of God were living in the wrong kingdom. And so God, the saving God, the one who saves and rescues, the Redeemer, comes into Egypt and binds the power of Pharaoh, defeats the power of Pharaoh through the plagues and all of that, and his people are led through the Red Sea, and they escape from that kingdom, out the rule of Pharaoh into the wilderness where no one ruled but God. So you can see from the beginning, the problem is about who are the people of God serving a little while after the exodus Israel demands a king the people said we want a king like everybody else and the prophet Samuel is sad and he feels like he's failed as a prophet and and all of that but God tells Samuel he says they haven't rejected you as prophet they have what they've rejected me as their king so the problem at this point in the story is that again the people of God Israel are serving the wrong king Israel's first king, Saul, the Bible tells us he was a good-looking, tall, uh, you know, powerful young man. He had leadership abilities. He was an impressive guy. And so they looked at him and said, that's the guy we want to serve. We want to follow that king. Again, the people of God have pledged their allegiance to somebody, but what, what happens with the story? Well, Saul eventually rejects God and leads Israel away from following God through improper worship and rebellion against the ways of of Yahweh, God. Um, By the time we get to Israel's third king, only the third king, Solomon, who has a pretty good reputation, right? As Solomon, he's a wise guy, he's like great wealth and power. Um, But if you read the text carefully, you see that Solomon has basically become another pharaoh, Solomon is known for building the temple and building the palace, and he used uh, slave labor, uh, Israelites' slave labor, for these building projects. He's enslaved his own people to build his great kingdom. He's built up a powerful army, and he's selling weapons to his enemies. Chariots were like the tanks and aircraft of the day. And he has this mighty military. And so he has become Pharaoh. He would marry into different families of foreign people. And it wasn't the problem, again, of geography. It was a problem of allegiance. And so to make smart deals, political moves, he would align himself with kingdoms and gods that weren't the king or the god of God's people. And so the book of the prophets, you know, uh, you go through the Old Testament, you got pro- book of prophet after book of prophet in the, old, in the Old Testament, and it's story after story criticizing and condemning the kings of Israel. You hear phrases like the shepherds of Israel are growing fat by eating their own sheep. It's talking about how the kings of Israel have made themselves powerful. They've enriched themselves at the cost of the people that they're supposed to be leading. The shepherds of Israel let the wolves into the sheep pen. The kings, the rulers of Israel haven't protected their people the way that God called them to. Their derelict of duty. The kings reject God time and time again and serve a different kingdom. They set up idol worship or they set up whatever is advantageous in that moment. These kings and rulers, they use their positions to enrich themselves, to grow in power, rather than caring for the people that they were entrusted by God to shepherd. Rulers who used religious convictions of the people 
to sway their favor or to keep them content or docile. So the problem for Israel in the Old Testament was that they kept serving bad kings. But when they were given the opportunity to choose to follow a different king, to pledge their allegiance to a a different king, they would choose the wrong king, again, given the opportunity. They continued to choose and continued to serve poor kings, unrighteous kings. They were a people that were ensnared by sin. They were corrupted by the kingdom of this world. They were enticed to follow the kings of darkness that led to death and destruction. And so the hope, we're getting ready to get into Advent, so I'm trying not to give away the Advent series, but the hope of God's people was for a new king to come. We needed, God's people needed a new king. This time a righteous king though. Not like the other kings, we needed a holy king. One who understood the heart of God and would live it out. And not only would he be holy, but this king would lead the people in proper worship. No longer would he lead them away, no longer would he be corrupted, but this king needed to be righteous and holy and to know God intimately. These people, they needed a king to teach them how to live as citizens in a different type of kingdom. So they needed a king to come and rescue them, but they needed not only to be rescued, they needed to be transformed or they'll fall back into the the old ways and the old habits. They needed to be rescued and transformed. They needed to be saved and sanctified. And this is, we have a a slide here with a couple verses, again, just highlighting, we read these already, but I wanted to highlight a few things from the, the words of Paul in this text. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you, Now pay attention, thinking kingdom-wise, to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. You have been qualified, you have been made uh, right, you have been made worthy to share in this inheritance within the kingdom of light. And this is kind of religious sounding words, but if you really get down into it, you realize that this is God's announcing that this kingdom, this alternative way, this new way, hey buddy, um, that God has made you worthy to enter into it. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, it says, the power of darkness. You have been rescued from the power from this kingdom of darkness and you're brought into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And so he goes on to explain from there how Jesus is the righteous king sent by the Father. He goes on to explain that that righteous king, that holy king we've been waiting for, everything that we've needed is in Jesus. And again, that's the Advent and Christmas. I'm not trying to get too far ahead. But what he's saying here is that when God delivers me or you or the people of God, whoever, from the authority of this dark domain, from this kingdom of darkness, he breaks the bondage that holds me, not by just setting me free, but by transferring me to another authority. Do you see what's happening here? You're no longer a servant of the king of darkness. You're no longer tied to a kingdom that is corrupted and evil, but now we can live in the kingdom of light, the kingdom with the holy king, the kingdom with the righteous king. So I'm not rescued to freedom without boundaries. I'm not just set free to my own whatever. 
but rather I am being transferred from one authority to another. I am pulled out of the clutches of this evil darkness, but I am brought into the arms of this God who welcomes me with grace. But I'm still under the authority of a king. But it's a good and loving king. It's King Jesus. And so we find ourselves kind of today on Christ the King Sunday asking what does it look like to follow King Jesus? Well, as we explore that, I first want you to know that complete allegiance to that king, to King Jesus, trust and faith in King Jesus actually keeps us from falling back into serving those other kings. So complete allegiance, fully stepping in, fully committing to the authority of Jesus as our, we say Lord, which sounds churchy, but that literally just means king, ruler, the one that we serve. And that complete allegiance to that king, to that Lord, prevents us from falling back into the kingdoms of the darkness or the kingdoms of this world. Long before anybody ever asked Jesus into their heart, they pledged their allegiance. People were committing themselves to this good and righteous king. They heard the story of a king who came and conquered death, conquered evil, and was going to rule for all eternity. And people said, yes, I want to be a citizen of that kingdom. I want to serve King Jesus. And of course, people would need help along the way as they made that commitment. They would need the help of a body or a faithful community. We would call it a church, right? God doesn't call us into allegiance alone. We're not the only citizen in this kingdom. We've been gathered together. It's a gift of his kingdom, this community that gathers around King Jesus. But not only does he give us one another, He gives us his own spirit that transforms us, that empowers us to continue to be faithful to him. Where our heart would wander, where our our flesh would fail, where our temptations would lead us elsewhere, his spirit lives within us and says, no, stay true to King Jesus, and here's how to do it. They didn't just ask Jesus into their life, they committed their lives in service and obedience to their king. And they lived as a citizen of God's kingdom. So how did they do that? Like what practical steps? I'm pragmatic when it comes down to it. I like some, you know, idealistic theoretical stuff, but at heart I want to know like what did they do? What does that look like? How can we, how did they do it then? How do we do it today? Well, the answer for them was baptism. Um, Baptism was the act that every Christian participated in. Today, baptism may have been, depending on traditions and and cultures, whatever you're in, it has been simplified in some ways as a way of just announcing that you believe in Jesus or that announcing that you have faith or you agree with some ideas about who Jesus is. But from the earliest days of the church, it had several meanings that all applied together. Baptism had a heavy weight to it. The first meaning, um, and these aren't in any particular order, but uh, was cleansing. So baptism is done with water because you get this image of cleansing. It would purify, it would wash away the stain and the shame of unrighteousness. The dirt from the old kingdom, if you will, right, is a, a cleansing process. But it was also a participation in the death of King Jesus, the burial of King Jesus, 
but most importantly, the resurrection of King Jesus. It is the entry point into this life that death cannot defeat. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. And so we die with Jesus as we go under the water. We are buried with Jesus as the water covers us and pours over us. And we are raised to new life as we come up out of the water. Cleansing, participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then thirdly, baptism was identity. It was allegiance. There are stories of communities of families shunning their children when their children were baptized. They're, they're, you could believe whatever you wanted, but the minute you were baptized, your identity, your allegiance changed. That's when consequences came in. That's when persecution kicked in historically, was baptism. God, through Jesus, has rescued you from the dominion of darkness, and our response to that is commitment. It's allegiance. It's faith, it's trust. So baptism is the sign that we acknowledge the saving work that King Jesus did for us and that we respond to that salvation with faithful obedience. It's a beautiful picture. It's acknowledging that King Jesus has saved us and rescued us and it is our yes back to his yes to us. As verse 10 said that we read a few moments ago, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, so that you may bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened in all power according to his glorious might, so you may have endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. So on this reign of Christ Sunday, or this Christ the King Sunday, you have the opportunity to witness and participate in uh, two families responding to the announcement that Jesus is king of God's kingdom. In our service, that's, that's what you're going to witness and you have the opportunity to participate in the announcement of these two families saying, Jesus is our king and we pledge our faith and our trust in him. In the Church of the Nazarene, we have provisions for both uh, child dedication and infant baptism. You may be familiar with one more than the other. Um, culturally, there's different kind of views on it. But in the Church of Nazarene, we make provisions for both. Uh, John and Tabitha Fisher have elected to dedicate Nora. A, um, dedication is a, uh, an act that can be compared to living in a foreign country with a visa, for example. Like you're living amongst the citizens, you're learning the culture, you're learning the practice, you're learning the beliefs, right? You're learning what does it mean to be in that country, in that kingdom. And the idea of dedication is that one day after living in that kingdom as a guest, as a visitor, as an uh, immigrant, that you make the decision for yourself that I want to be a citizen of this kingdom. One day, Nora will understand for herself that Jesus is the king who rescues her. And in response to that understanding, Nora will pledge her allegiance to King Jesus, choosing to become a citizen of God's kingdom. And so that's what dedication is. It's the beginning of a trajectory to which she can make that claim for herself. Uh, Allison and Andrew Logan have elected to have their son Wyatt baptized this morning. This can be compared to being born into a country 
as a citizen. So you, you have the identity, you have the, the, the status of being a member of that kingdom, a member of that country, but as you grow, you have to learn what does it mean to be the citizen. And so it's a different trajectory. Um, there's three symbols of baptism that are present in our experiences today that we're about to participate in. Again, you'll see the cleansing of sin, shame, guilt that only God can do. You, there's a participation of death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus and the identification that Jesus is king even over the life of a child. And so at this time, I'm going to invite the families to come to the front, um, John and Tabitha and Nora and whoever's going to be with you, and then Allison and Andrew and Wyatt can come stand over here. Um, and I'm going to come down off my high horse. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll start with, with the fishers here. Um, mo many of you know John and Tabitha and Rosemary and little Nora. And like I said a moment ago, they've come to have Nora dedicated. Um, and we are excited to do that today. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says this. The little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So John, Tabitha, in presenting this child for dedication, you signify not only your faith in the Christian faith, but also that your desire that she will know early and will follow the will of God, that she may live and die as a Christian and come into everlasting blessedness. In order to attain this holy end, it will be your duty as parents to teach her early the fear of the Lord, to watch over and guide her education, that she may not be led astray, to direct her youthful mind to the holy scriptures and her feet to the sanctuary, to restrain her from evil associates and habits, and as much as in you lies to bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Will you, John and Tabitha, endeavor to do so by the help of God? If so, answer, I will. I ask you now, the whole congregation, will you commit yourself as the body of Christ to support and encourage these parents as they endeavor to fulfill these responsibilities to this child and to assist by nurturing her growth towards spiritual maturity if you will, say, we will. Right, let me pray for Nora as we dedicate you. Our loving Heavenly Father, we do hereby and now dedicate Nora Ruth Fisher in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We humbly pray that you will take this child into your loving care, abundantly enrich her with your heavenly grace. Bring her safely through the perils of childhood. Deliver her from temptations of youth. Lead her to a personal knowledge of Christ as Savior. Help her grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all people. And to persevere there until the end. Uphold her parents with loving care, with wise counsel, and holy example they may faithfully discharge their responsibilities both to this child and to you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray and dedicate this child. Amen. And you guys can return to your seats and I'm going to pass. Yep.
um, I'll pass this off to Tabitha in a second. Um, she is going to uh, lead us in the time of the baptism for Wyatt. Hey, buddy. <laughs> He's got to get mic'd up here. I'll let you introduce introduce them, and then you can go from there. All right, so this is Allison and Andrew and Wyatt Logan. They are members of our daycare, and we are so happy that they are here to dedicate or to baptize Wyatt with us today. The sacrament of baptism is the sign and seal of the new covenant of grace. While we do hold that baptism imparts the regeneration of God's grace— regenerating grace of God, we do believe that Christian baptism signifies for this young child's acceptance within the community of Christian faith on the basis of provenient grace. It anticipates his personal confession of faith to Christ. Allison and Andrew, in presenting this child for the baptism, you are hereby witnessing your own personal Christian faith and to your purpose to guide him early in life to acknowledge of Christ as Savior. To this end, it is your duty to teach him as soon as he is able to learn the nature and the end of the Holy Sacrament, to watch over his education, that he may be led, not be led astray, to direct his feet to the sanctuary, to restrain him from evil associates and habits, and as much as in you lies, to bring him to the, na to the nurture and admonition of the Lord. <clears throat> will you endeavor to do so by the help of God? If so, answer I will. Baptism also signifies the acceptance of this child into the community of Christian faith. I now ask you as the congregation, will you commit yourselves as the body of Christ to support and encourage these parents as they endeavor to fulfill their responsibilities to this child and to insist by nurturing his growth towards spiritual maturity? If so, say we will. Wyatt Stephen Logan, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we humbly pray that you will take this child into your loving care, abundantly enrich him for your heavenly grace, bring him safely through the perils of childhood, Deliver him from the temptations of youth. Lead him to a personal knowledge of Christ as Savior. Help him to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all people and to persevere therein to the end. Uphold the parents with loving care that, they, or that with wise counsel and holy example they may faithfully discharge their responsibilities to both this child and to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You guys may go have a seat. I'm going to invite you to stand. Um, it's been a good day to be together, has it not? Um, I love to see people 
living out their faith, making commitments to follow all the more. Um, I'm going to speak a word of blessing, a benediction over us, and we will be dismissed. I encourage you to kind of track down the families here um, and speak a word of blessing or congratulations or just say hi. Uh, if you, you know, there's a lot of folks here that you may not know today, so um, nobody wants to go back out in the snow anyway, so just hang out here and socialize for a little bit and uh, get to know some folks, but let me speak this word of blessing. Um, if you are unfamiliar with benedictions, I will put my hand up like this as if I'm speaking these words over the top of you and a posture you can take if you're comfortable is hands out receiving this blessing as if you were going to just grab as much of God as you can and take it with you on the way out the door, right? So that's kind of what we do around here. All right, so receive these words today. It is not enough to acclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord and King. Our mission in life is to make his kingdom a reality among us and to bring it to those around us through our words and through our deeds. The way that we do this is to live as he lived, to live for others in love and in service. And so may God Almighty, God bless you for this task. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is with you. So we go in peace to love and to serve King Jesus as we live in his kingdom. It's in his name we go. You are dismissed.